so excited to meet you and uh, that you said yes to this. I, I have been such a huge fan for a ridiculously long time. Um, Thank you, Vicky. It's lovely to be here. Lovely to see you at last. It is. And, and be, so we have to talk about it because it's crazy, but Snuffy actually played with you. It has to be, oh my God, is it like 50 years ago? <laughs> at least he played in free. In front. He came in and, and we recorded Heartbreaker, the album Heartbreak, in 1973. So 51 years. I mean, it's it's crazy. And I connected, I reconnected with Snuffy the middle of last year because I wanted to get into film scoring and so on. And I'd heard a lot about uh, Mr. Snuffy Walden and that, how he climbed these great heights, you know, in the TV and movie scoring world. And I just reached out to him and he's been a sweetheart ever since. So was, I'm so glad I reconnected with him. And and as is he. But my guess is that the first time around when you guys met, um, mm -hmm. life was very different for both of you because I know he was a big old addict alcoholic back in those days. I mean, wow. Well, we all were. I mean, I don't think <laughs> that we realized at the time because we were in our 20s. It's hard to believe, but we were. We were in our twenties, and everyone drank, um, and it and and coke had just come on the scene, and it became like a sort of currency amongst musicians. No one really looked down on it; it wasn't like a big deal. But of course, we were we didn't know that we were really dipping our toes into the seas of addiction. Um, that would come about ten ten years later for me, and I believe Snuffy got sober in um, in the early eighties as well so um hats off to him it was great it was great to see him again i, I have to say so so simon what, what i want to start with this mundane stuff because it's not mundane to me when did you when did you okay it blows my mind you grew up in a house without running water is that true oh yeah yeah i, I came from you know i we made the beverly hillbillies look like uh the trump family <laughs> What what did your father do? Not much. Um, no, 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 no. I, I don't integrate the old bugger. He was a, he was a great guy, but he really couldn't keep. You know, money just seemed to go through his hands. Mm. And we, we sort of did a runner from London in 1957. I was I was eight. Uh, my my younger brother was uh, six and a half, and we ended up in this tiny cottage in the middle of bloody nowhere. We paid a, a pound a week, one pound a week, which was wow. money. It's not a lot of money back then. And we had no, wow. I'll never forget, listen to this. We got there after having traveled all day from London and we got there around dusk. It'd be about six, 6.30 in the evening. Right. Say, oh, welcome, you know, says, we're going to start a new life. Blah, blah, blah. And mum, she sort of went in, opened the, the kitchen door and scraped her hand on the wall for the light switch. And she said, oh, darling, um, where are the lights? And dad said, well, there's no electricity. And she said, you mean no one's paid the bill? He said, no, there's no electricity. And oh, by the way, there's also no running water. And oh we, uh, so for four years, we just lived on gas lamps, water from a well, and we walked to school. You know what, Vicky? It it was great. 
Okay, that was my next question. So, so what was like life at night when it would get dark? What did you guys do? <laughs> well, we had these things called tilly lamps, and they were gas. You pumped them, and then you put a match to the the filament, and it went, you know. And suddenly, you had this wonderful bright light, and we read. We read lots of books, me and my brothers and mum. And then we had these, you know, these new inventions called transistor radios. <laughs> you know? I mean, you fast forward 70 or 60 years to the gadgets that we have nowadays. It was ridiculous. Her mind. She just would not get her head around it. So we had this sort of idyllic uh upbringing for young boys i wouldn't put anyone through it now but it was it was great we 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 had no money so we you know we grew our own vegetables we um wow it was it was pretty it was like survivor so so yeah but like real life so that's very humbling and so how did you have, how was there money for you to get drums? And when did you get drums and what? So I know you were like a contemporary of the Beatles. So who, what music turned you on when you were a kid? It's a good point. After these four years living in the wilderness, we were on the list to get um, what we call a council house, a house owned by the state. And, and like, by the way, you're not a contemporary of the Beatles. You're a li you're younger, but yeah, well, maybe yeah, maybe four or five years um, uh, younger than Ringo. Uh, but uh, around about when I was at twelve, so we've mm -hmm. been five, nearly five years. We won the we won the the uh, the housing lottery, and we got a house which actually had running water and all the things uh -huh. that take for granted now. So when we got there. Um, we moved into this house and it was like moving into the Taj Mahal. It was just, oh my God. Mum was flicking on and off the lights. <laughs> she was almost in tears. It was, it was so I got, um, I still had a little transistor radio. But what the, the big lightning bolt for me, Vicky, was when we got our first TV and I was about 13. And I believe one of the first programs we ever saw it was all in black and white was this thing called all that jazz it was a program about which featured big bands jazz you know like woody herman and, and uh, ellington and you know it was, it was quite advanced for england in the very early 60s and i was fascinated by the drummer i was like whoa you know they had the trombones and the saxes and the trumpets and yeah that was all right but then they zoomed in on the drummer and the lights were coming off the cymbals and he did a solo and he twirled his sticks. Boom, I was gone. That was it. So I picked up a pair of mum's knitting needles and I started <laughs> to follow along. <laughs> you know, trying to follow along. And uh, that's when I got bitten by the bug. And um, then the, we were so far away from anywhere, there was I had no idea what real drums looked like. So I made my own drumsticks that were about seven inches long, cut them from a hedge and started banging around on books on my bed, all the while listening to this uh, radio station called Radio Luxembourg, which was a really hip um, radio station catering to the, the American armed forces in Europe. And they played Tamala Motown, they play Otis Redding, you know, they wouldn't play any of the pop stuff. 
so I, I would be banging along on my bed to these songs and then you know do you think that do you believe in do you believe in reincarnation i don't know i'd like to think so but i, I mean because it sounds like you've done this before like what made you pick up the what drew you to the drums what why why that and did you study no one's ever asked me that before i the short answer i think is that i was my testosterone was starting to kick in and most young kids like to, young boys and girls now i don't want to be sexist they like making a noise but there was no piano there's no guitar there was mm. just something about this and you could you could make your own percussion i was i got pretty good pretty quickly but what really happened um, what put the the icing on the cake about let me think. I got my first snare drum. A, a snare drum with a little... I like the way... Was it this big? <laughs> it was a regular size snare. 14 by... Uh, 14 by five and a half. And I got it on a stand. I got it for Christmas. And I'd never seen anything like it. It was a real mother of pearl. Cost 14 pounds, which is a lot of... And I started playing brushes. Because sticks were way too loud. It was like way too loud. So I learned on brushes and I started to develop. I, I started to get pretty good. Then one day, my bus driver, the school bus driver, used to take us every day to and from school. Um, he said, oh, I, Simon, just as I'm getting off the bus, he said, Simon, I hear you play drums. And I said, Well, I play drum. I've got one drum. He said, well, look, if you get a little kit, I've heard that you're pretty good. I want you to come with me if it's all right with your parents. He had a little disco and he had all these 45s of all different genres of music. And he'd go around the village halls playing people would dance. And he thought it would be a novelty if I had a little drum kit and played along with the records. And I was like, wow. And I did that for two and a half years. And I was, I got really good because you had to keep in time, Vicky. You know, you couldn't, otherwise it would be a train wreck. And that's how I learned to, to really keep time and keep good rhythm and so on. Because one minute you'd be playing the Beatles, can buy me love. And then the next thing would be a slow country waltz. And then some oompa, oompa, stick it up your jumper sort of thing. <laughs> So after two and a half years, and then during one of these gigs, this guy came up to me, he was a country lad, and he said, um, I'm in a band called The Maniacs. I thought, what a great name. <laughs> a great name. And he said, I've, I've been watching you and you're really good. We want you to be in the band. So my very, very first band was called The Maniacs and we won prizes and we started, that was the start of my and and how old were you in the in the maniacs? Maniacs, I was there from fourteen to sixteen, um, and then I I left that band. And we formed a little trio called Heatwave, and I did all the singing, and that's when I I wanted to go to London. I was I was just sixteen, and I said to my folks, I want to go to London, and they said, No, you're not going to go. And I, I I'll explain quickly about the exam system in England. 
There are two types of um, certificate, O for ordinary level and A right. for advanced level. Now, if you okay. get advanced level certificates, you've got a better chance of going into a university. With O levels, yeah, maybe community college or whatever. Mm -hmm. It requires you to stay another two years from 16 to 18. And my folks said, no, you are not leaving school, but you get your A-levels and then you can have two years when you leave at 18, you can have two years to try this pop group thing that my dad was not keen on. And um, <laughs> if nothing happens after two years, you come back and you go to university. And it was a great deal. Yeah, so I... I and so tell us what you did for those two years. I washed cars. <laughs> I was on a demolition site using a pneumatic drill. <laughs> um, I, I, I worked in a wine factory. There's a, there's a, there's That's a nice for us. Factory. <laughs> and every Christmas we used to, I got these huge army coats and I put all this booze inside all the pockets. <laughs> sort of waddle out. The bottling plant, you know, like a chandelier clinking. Like <laughs> um, what else? I worked in a plastics factory, I worked on a construction site, and all the time I'm going to these auditions, I'm answering adverts in the melody maker, the, the music paper, uh, in England. You're very young, though. I was well, I was 18, you know, I, I was 18. And, you know, the clock was ticking and they wouldn't, they said, oh, no, no, we, you know, it didn't work out. We got someone else. Oh, God. No. All the time, I, I'm going to these gigs in London. Now, I'm a country boy, even though I'm born in, in, in London, but I've spent my formative years in the country. So to come back to London and see these musicians, Vicky, you know, I mean, I'm looking at Peter Green, Fleetwood Mac, Ainsley Dunbar, uh, Jeffro Tull. Uh, 10 years oh my old. God! But now, Simon, do you excuse me for interrupting? Do you believe that you can do? Do you believe in yourself at this point? Do you think you do you think you're going to get in under the wire at the two years? Oh, well, that's a very good question. I knew that I was good, but I knew that I would have to get really good because I'm looking at these professionals. And by the way, they're only a couple of years older than me. They're probably right, right early 20s mm -hmm. so I thought you know oh God, uh, but at least I will have tried at least I gave it a shot so the the 23rd month of the 24 that I've been given I see I'm looking through Melody Maker my little bio all right wait before you get to the good thing what do you if if it doesn't happen do you have oh. a plan b what do you what are you going to do like what would you go to school for I wanted to be a photojournalist. I love cameras. I love journalism. And I wanted to combine the two. I was a big fan of um, Burroughs and um, uh, Frank Kappa, you know, the great mm -hmm. journalist of the time. That's what I wanted to do. Okay. War-torn countries. I must have been out of my bloody mind. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. So, Anyway, I really think I've done it. You know, my 20, 24 months is up. And I look in the back of Melody Maker, and there's this great name of a band, Black Cat Bones. <laughs> Black Cat. And it was a blues band. You know, this is the mm -hmm. height of the blues boom in England. 
And I was so intrigued by by the name of this band. <clears throat> so, but it was a long way away across London. It's like going from uh, Staten Island to the Bronx. It's mm -hmm. a long way, a really long way. But it's a subway, and so I flipped a coin. If if it's comes down heads, I'll stay at home and I'll write some letters home or whatever. If it comes down tails, I'll go. And it came down tails. I thought, okay, all right. Okay, wait, I'm going to show off for a second now. No, just because I want to know. I was just in London a few months ago. So what what part did you live in and what part did you have to go to? Twickenham. And Twickenham is, is this very, very southwest suburb of uh, Richmond, you know, where the stones mm -hmm. were. And it's about a 45-minute subway ride to Battersea, which is southeast London. Okay. Across, you know, the, the bottom part of London. And then you've got to walk like 15 minutes to this pub. And the pub was called The Nags Head. And I got there just as the band, they'd been playing for a few minutes. And I walked in and they were, they were okay. They weren't great, but the guitarist was stunning. I mean, he he had his head thrown back and he was a little, <laughs> he was only about five foot two. But he had- Really? Some, yeah, Cross was a little geezer. Wow. Little, yeah. So anyway, um, after about 45 minutes, they had a break so everyone could get a drink he comes down to the bar and i said i gotta say mate you 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 played so well and thank you for and he was so nice he said oh that's very nice of you thank you i said but i think your drummer's shit <laughs> no he's terrible but he was he was dragging <laughs> he was terrible and he said, because and cost looked at me like who the fuck is this <laughs> he said well tonight is his last night He's leaving and we're having auditions tomorrow here in this pub. So if you want to come along, so that's it. And I went home 45 minutes. Oh, God. This morning, another 45 minutes. There was another bloke, another drummer up for the job. I played a couple of songs and I got the job. And suddenly I was in a professional band just missing that gate coming down on the 24th month. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Did your the... parents live to see your success? They did. Oh. oh, yeah. I gave dad my very first gold album. Oh, he had it in his little um, assisted living uh, room until he died. You know, oh. he, yeah, yeah. He was very proud. Did they did they come to see you? Did they see yeah, you yeah. play to like big things? They came to um, I had all of free the band free. We all went to see my mum in her flat in her apartment and she made them cups of tea. I said, mum, have you got anything stronger? <laughs> said, well, I can use less milk. <laughs> but did she ever go and see you play with Free? Yeah, yeah, at the Colton Hall in Bristol. We headlined there and uh, it was, no, I, I was so, I, I, it wasn't It wasn't a case of I told you so. It was, no. I knew that I could do it if I stuck at it. Um, but you know, it's Vicky, it's not, really a question of talent anymore it's applying it, it's where you make your own luck in a way does that make sense well you they know? say what luck is is when opportunity meets um uh hard work or something like that right yeah i like that yeah. And and you, and I have to segue to this for a second before we come back to you, you've raised three very successful daughters. <laughs> um, so did they get this work ethic from you? I mean, 
I was blown away. I had no idea about your daughters. Um, Jemima, yeah. I know from girls, right. right? Lola from Gone Girl. Yeah. Um, Domino I mean, is a, a singer. A, a, they're amazing. Mozart in the Jungle. Well, um, Lola did three seasons of Mozart in the Jungle as Haley Rutledge. So she, she, that was her launching pad. And, and I guess getting back to your original question, I've always had a work ethic and, and I, I, I really can trace it back to having to walk to school there and back two miles every morning, having mm -hmm. to get up, God, 6.30, 7 o'clock. And it was ingrained in me, even when I got a car, you know, I, I and, and this segues into my, when I was an, an addict, when I was an active addict, mm -hmm. time that I've got left, I'm trying to make up for all those wasted days and nights over the years. How, how did that start for you, Simon? When, when did you start drinking and, and using and doing all of that stuff? Because you didn't have any money. How were you doing that stuff? I, I never, I didn't drink alcoholically or do addictive substances until I would say towards the end of free and free finally collapsed in 1973 and I met some Brazilians I went to Brazil I met a beautiful girl uh, who was in London she was Brazilian and I ended up going down to Brazil and they introduced me to coke ah. and it was the best stuff I mean it was like wow and that's when it all started to go a little pear-shaped. Um, <laughs> because Free had broken up. Bad company wouldn't happen for a few months. And I was in this limbo. I was only 24. I could stay up all night and it was no big deal. But all the time, these sort of storm clouds of addiction were starting to gather and starting to envelop but, me. But weren't they impacting the band because of, of Paul? Wasn't it already, was it was it a part of the, like was the band getting into trouble because of his drug use? Was that yeah. impacting? I think that's a very good point, Vicky. Um, I, Free never really had, between the, the other three of us, Paul, Paul Rogers, Andy mm -hmm. Frey, himself, we would drink beer, we'd have a little joint now and again. I never did pills. I never did any hard drugs. Mm -hmm. Seeing Paul Kossoff go from this amazingly lucid, incredible player, happy, joyous, you know, the whole thing, in the space of a couple of years to this shell of a, of a guy, mm -hmm. uh, unwashed, you know, slobbering, and just a horrible oh. I think it, 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 it instilled in us, you know, not to go down that path. And, and we didn't. I mean, we, we the, what drove Paul Kossoff to addiction was when Free broke up. And mm. we broke up for the stupidest reason. And um, Please tell. Well, it, it wasn't a personal reason. We, would, we were working our asses off. Mm -hmm. uh, all right now hits. You know, we were suddenly playing all over the world. Instead of playing a different town every night, we're playing a different country. We're wow. doing Germany, Holland, France, Belgium. Sweden, Finland, boom, boom, boom. So by the end of 71 into 72, Paul Rogers said, you know what, guys, I need a break. I really need a break. But then we went to Japan. We, did, uh, we went to America. We came back. 71 became 72. And that's when he put his foot down, uh, mm -hmm. Paul Rogers. And I remember me and Koss, Paul Kossoff, 
coming into the studio to work on the the highway album and there was a horrible atmosphere in the in the control room mm. we go hey guys yeah how's it going and paul and andy turned to us and said we're breaking the band up I said what he said yeah after we've done japan and australia that's it australia will be the last show and we were absolutely gobsmacked and 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 that's what happened so in 1972, we finished in in uh, Randwick Racecourse in Sydney. That was our final gig. I flew back to um, America, where I promptly got arrested. It's another story for another time. Cost no, wait, I want to hear that story no, after this. <laughs> amazing story. <laughs> so not only is my fucking band broken up, I borrow, listen to this, a 66 Red Mustang. From a friend of mine, a girlfriend, not a romantic. Well, at least it was red, yeah. Oh, my God. It was, and I said, can I borrow this for an afternoon? She said, of course you can, of course you can. So off I go, out of L.A., we have arrived in L.A., and uh, I suddenly find Highway 5. Is it north, the one five? Yes, north? sure. And I see this 100 yards wide, six-lane freeway, <laughs> very little traffic. I don't know why, a long time ago. And off I go, and I'm doing 120. When a, car, a guy pulls up alongside me, I think, fucking hell, what's he driving? And he sort of looks at me, I look at him, and off we go on a drag race. Suddenly, he peels off, and sure enough, in the rearview mirror, it's a cop. Now, now it gets bizarre. Vicky, you're not going to believe this. So he pulls me over, He says, and he's furious. He said, you know how fucking fast you were going? I said, I'm really sorry, sir. I'm not used to these beautiful roads. I'm trying to, you know, defuse it. These wonderful roads and this lovely car. Uh, he said, where, where are you from? I said, I'm from England, sir. And dig this. He suddenly leans in. He says, well, me and my wife, we just came back from Stratford-upon-Aden on a Shakespearean tour. I said, what? Yeah, Anne Hathaway's Cottage, the Globe Theatre. I said, all I could do was, wow, lucky you. <laughs> Can you believe us? California Highway Patrolman just <laughs> he was on the Shakespearean tour. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, this is not, listen, son, you know, I, I got to write you up, you know, where's your license? Uh, I, I don't have one. Oh, I'm no. An English one. So I show him my English one, no ID, nothing. So it's not looking good. Suddenly, another cop car comes on the other side. This guy is central casting <laughs> shade, you know, the, the mirrored shade, young, wants to make a name for himself. And he whispers to the guy, have you tossed the car? And the guy says, no. The older guy, he's quite nice. Says, no, oh, no. Out. You, out. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck. So they search a car. Under the floor mat, they find a roach about an inch long and he said this is dangerous drugs contrary to section whatever number i said it's a fucking roach he said it's yours i said it's not it's not even my car i borrowed it from a girl at AM records well that he said hands behind your back he cuffs me i go to salinas county jail where i'm held for five days five days before i even oh. get an appearance and oh my uh, God. yeah, I I got away 
with a hundred uh, yeah three hundred dollar fine and a three thousand dollar lawyer's bill. Oh. Yeah, and they squashed the the dangerous drugs. Can you believe it? Dangerous drugs. Those were the days. Uh, yeah. I still look when I still see a cop behind me I still get ner nervous because I was a pothead and I always had pot in the car and I it still makes me nervous that they're going to catch me and it's legal now and I still get nervous no you can go to a dispenser it's incredible about time they should ban booze you said it oh. <laughs> all right so wait go back to the story so so we're, we're talking about how free broke up so well it did and it didn't because what happened was Andy and Paul Rogers formed their own band because, you know, I, I, and Koss, Paul Kossoff kind of went into his shell and, and he became, he missed playing with Paul Rogers. He loved Paul, Paul mm. sing, And he started taking these things called mandrakes, which are like quaaludes. Mm. And I didn't really notice the change in him because I was, I had my own little place so I used to live with him but then I got my own place mm -hmm. so I go around and you know knock on his door and his girlfriend would say oh he's in bed you know he's still in bed he's got the cold he's got the flu or whatever oh okay so little did I know that he was really getting into this and about three months later she called me Sandy called me and said he's in a real bad state I went round there Vicky I didn't recognize him oh. he Meld, he was disheveled. He oh, was, he was in a, such a state. I thought, you know, what the hell's so? She said, you know, these dealers have been coming around and giving him stuff. I think he started doing heroin. Oh, whoa. So at this time, I was making a solo album. Me and Koss were making an album called Kossoff Kirk. Tetsu and Rabbit. It was a really good album. Now, how did you connect with Tetsu and Rabbit? How did that relationship happen? Well, um, Tetsu was a Japanese bass player who mm -hmm. we met in when we were in Japan, only a few months um, prior to mm -hmm. us back. And Kos knew that the band was going to break up. Remember, it was Japan and Australia that we were going to break right. up. Right. But we got in. I, I really liked Tetsu. He spoke good English. And we we jammed with him. He's a very simple but solid bass player. Mm -hmm. said to me, I really like this guy. I mean, I'd like to have him in, in the band. And Rabbit, this wonderful keyboard player who used to play with Johnny Nash, mm -hmm. uh, we can't we got to know through Reebok, who was a conga player with Traffic, the band Traffic. And we got introduced to him in Sweden. We went, we had a day off and we went to see him and he, we exchanged numbers and whatever. And he said, you know, I love, I love free. Anyway, long story short, we, we managed to get the two. We flew Tetsu over from Tokyo and Rabbit came from Houston. He was from Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And we formed this band and we, we, it's one of the best albums I ever played on, mm -hmm. but singing was not good. It was okay, but it wasn't Paul Rogers. So that that's why we never there on. there is no other Paul Rogers. There's just no other Paul Rogers. <laughs> so because we didn't tour, the album really it got critical acclaim, but it, it really didn't do anything commercially. And that's when costs really started going downhill. Mm. If you look at the photos on the back, you'll see that Koss is so out of it. 
And then I called Paul Rogers and said, look, you know, Koss is really in a mess. And, and Paul's band, Peace, was not doing well. And his band was called Toby. That wasn't doing very well. So, you know, we were still only in our twen early 20s. Mm -hmm. And Paul Rogers said, well, should we reform free? And I said, yes, please. You know, because it was to get Koss out of this funk and get mm -hmm. him back to how he used to be. We didn't know shit about sobriety, recovery. He needed of to course. Of he course. At least two or three months. And 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 we we had no idea. And our management was even more ignorant, you know. Mm. So when we got back together, it was a disaster. I mean, Koss was so out of it. Uh, we played the Albert Hall, one of the biggest, most prestigious gigs. And two minutes before we're going on the Albert Hall, I'm trying to place Paul's fingers on the guitar neck to show him the opening chords to All Right Now. What? And um, Rhodey's going, five minutes, guys. Jesus. How we got through that gig is beyond me. We, oh, we my it. God. We've got three encores. Most of the other gigs, he'd fall into the equipment and then it all came to a crashing halt when he had an epileptic seizure just before going on in Newcastle, one of the biggest gigs of the tour. And we had to cancel the rest of the tour. He went to hospital. And that's when the, the diagnosis that this guy was going through chronic withdrawals from mandrex and heroin and he really oh. you know uh it was horrible 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 so in 1973 he couldn't make the the session the heartbreaker album sessions <laughs> we kicked him out after four or five uh, uh tracks and rabbit says i know this great guitarist called snuffy walden i said bring him in and snuffy he could have he could have ridden in on a bloody Mustang. He looked so good looking. He had a Stetson. He had cowboy boots. I, I, maybe he had his horse tied up on a bar outside Island Records. Also I, from Houston. <laughs> <laughs> and he was one take, man. He was wonderful. And, and yeah, yeah. That was you fun. know, I've got to tell you something. It's hysterical. With all that Snuffy's done, I interviewed John Waite. Uh, I've interviewed him a few times. He's become a friend. But John, all he cared about was that Snuffy played with Free. That was all he cared. Tell me about Free. Tell, I mean, you got you guys were legend. You know, you're legends. It's legendary. It, 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 yeah. Um, well, so really, Vicky, getting back to '73, hard to believe it's 50 years ago, but that really was the end of, of Free. We we couldn't. We added different lineups, you know. It had to be heartbreaking. Was it not heartbreaking for you? Honestly, at the time, knowing addiction and sobriety and recovery now like I do, mm -hmm. I had no idea back then. I couldn't wait to get rid of the little bugger. Oh, I see. I was like, he's a stone around our necks. And there comes a time, and I've heard this in the rooms over the years, where a partner will say, fuck it, I can't take this anymore. It's either... He goes down, he takes me with him. Yeah. Or she goes down and she takes me with her or whatever. And and 
I went to Brazil. I met this beautiful Brazilian woman. And that's when I started doing blow. And uh, I got pretty strung out. But I was only 24. I could sort of shake it off. Yeah. I didn't know that I was suddenly, addiction had become awakened in me. So I called Paul Rogers when I got back from Brazil. Wait, before you tell me what you're going to tell me, did it ever dawn on you that your greatest success was still ahead of you? Oh, no. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wanted to think that there was something out there. I, I always wanted to work, and I loved playing drums. I loved pl playing with Paul. Paul Rogers was such a good singer. Uh, but I, I would really been bitten rather badly, you know, with Paul Kossoff. And the thought of starting again didn't deter me. Like I mm -hmm. said, 24, loads of years in front of me. Sure. And had Paul Rogers not offered me, you know, to come and play with Bad Company, I would have found another. Mm -hmm. But he was so well loved in England and we'd all gotten good. Everywhere. Play. Yes. So it wasn't the end of the world. But Paul said, look, I've met this guitarist who's just leaving Mott the Hoople, Mick Rouse. Mm -hmm. he, his band was opening for Mick, for Mott the Hoople on the English tour. And Mick, in confidence, has said to him, I'm fed up with Mott the Hoople. No one wants to do my songs anymore. I'm not getting on with Ian Hunter. And he played Paul this reel-to-reel -reel of this song called Can't Get Enough. Oh, God. Said, which which I've heard Ian say he couldn't sing. He couldn't sing. He, it, it wasn't that he didn't want to. It was that he couldn't sing it. Well, I think you can put the word wouldn't alongside. Oh. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, it was like take whatever I want. It wasn't the, the hard rocker that it became. It was kind mm. of a, you know, it was fairly, but it was in open sea and mm -hmm. guitarists out there will... It's like, whoa, what's that? Well, open C is a really wonderful chord. Um, and and uh, so Paul started singing along to it. And he said to Mick, this is a hit. And and that's where really Mick told me, he was like, well, you want to form a band? Mm. And, and they did. So I went to see Paul with Mick, and I love Mick from the get-go. Mm. So funny, good player, not, not a great player. Not like Koss, but E.B. Right. King said a great thing. He said, if you like a musician as a person, that's 90% of it. Wow. You know, you don't need to be Eddie Van Halen. You don't need mm -hmm. to be Eric. You don't need to be Paul Koss. As if, if this guy and you get on, that's really th the main thing. And Mick was a really very good, good player. And mm -hmm. he had his, his other song, Ready for Love, Moving On. And suddenly we've got a bad company that me and Paul wrote. Suddenly we've got four really, really good songs. Okay, you wrote one of the greatest rock anthems of all time. How I want to know, because I haven't heard the story. How the hell did you did it did you sit down and write it? Did it just come? Was it arduous? How did that happen? No, it's at all. Uh, what happened was I came into Paul's little cottage. And he just had this huge piano delivered, which took up the little living room and most of the kitchen. It was like a concert <laughs> grab. <laughs> he was noodling along in E flat minor. And 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 most uh, musicians out there, particularly piano players, E flat minor is all the black notes. 
and it's actually really kind of easy to to play uh, a minor scale but he had this bomb 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 and i'm going oh that's nice and he said yeah i've been watching um that spaghetti western clint eastwood fistful of dollars and i've got this image of you know riders bounty hunters crossing the plains and chasing <laughs> these bad guys and i'm going go on then so he's company always on the run and i'm going what rhymes with company destiny is the rising sun yeah and suddenly <laughs> like have a quick drag of a drink, little drinking lager vicky we wrote the song in 15 minutes oh shit! 15 minutes wow and it became it became the monster that it that wonderful monster Wonderful. Okay, I didn't ask you this. So where did the band name come from? Bad Good Company. Question. Well, there are several schools of thought. I'll give you my version. What <laughs> happened was, I'll never forget, I was in Paul's cottage and he'd gone out to do some grocery shopping. And we were going under the, the temporary name of Rubber Knickers. Rubber Knickers. Knickers. That was old I don't think you would have been nearly as famous as with, with yeah. Rubber Knickers. Well, I can't even remember writing a song about rubber knickers. <laughs> um, and he said, listen, I've just come back from Guildford, this uh, little town near his cottage. And there was a big billboard advertising this Western uh, movie uh, with Jeff Bridges called Bad Company. And he said, it's, it really stood out to me. And I thought, wow, yeah. So let's call the band Bad Company. I said, that's great. That's a great idea. Now, Paul Rogers will tell you something totally different. Really? Uh, yeah, well, he had a book on Victorian, Victoriana, you know, um, London at the, the turn of mm -hmm. the 1800s into 1900s. And there's one of the big uh, portraits is this three or four very scruffy ruffians hanging around a lamppost. And the, the, the caption says, you know, um this looks like bad company to us and he'll say that that's where the name came from that's his take on it that's fine he might have put two and two together and when he saw the billboard thought maybe it's a sign but he doesn't remember seeing that billboard he only remembers that book so whatever um they're both we, good stories they both work they're both good stories yeah <laughs> and i remember when peter grant had to call United Artists to see if your bag company oh. was registered. And it was not. It was not a registered trademark. And I believe one of the, the the people on the call said, yeah, well, you know, this this movie will run for months and months. I doubt your fucking band will last even five minutes. <laughs> and here we are, 50 years later. <laughs> and now nobody's ever heard of the movie, and 50 uh, years later, uh, here you are. Uh, but that brings in back, um, Peter Grant and Led Zeppelin, which is uh, that was. So how did how did you come to be? How did you come to get Peter Grant to manage you? Well, we'd been we'd been bitten rather badly with our our previous management, Chris Blackwell at Ireland Records, and I won't knock Chris because we were all ignorant of addiction and stuff back then, but. Um, we were tired of free. We wanted to put free behind us in the rear view mirror. We wanted to get on with with this new band. I mean, we had me and Paul Rogers and Mick Routes. Uh, we didn't have a bass player yet, but that's another story. But we had these four or five songs 
And every time we played them, we felt, yeah, this is so damn good. So our roadie who worked for free was a New Zealander. And he'd come over on the boat with another New Zealander who ended up roadieing for Led Zeppelin. And they kept in touch because they were, you know, they were compatible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we got Peter Grant's number, phone number, from this roadie who worked for uh, Led Zeppelin. And Paul Rogers, typical Paul, you know, we wanted the best manager. Who's the best manager? Who's the best band? Who's the biggest band? Led Zeppelin. Let's call it. So we he called him up. And he said, hi, Peter, I'm Paul Rogers, and I've got a band with Mick and Simon. And, and Peter cut him. He said, sorry to interrupt you, but I know all about it. What? He said, yeah, I know all about it. And, and you're still looking for a bass player. Wow. Okay. That was just an inkling. Well, I mean, you guys had quite cachet. I mean, it's not like you were a couple no. of... <laughs> yeah. So he said, look, I, I live in Sussex. And, and we told him we were rehearsing in uh, Albury, which is in Surrey. Mm -hmm. Now, before all the motorways were built, this was a really long trip for him to come. He said, I'll come and see you. Name a date. Wow, what a great guy. <laughs> so we named it a date. And, and we were like, oh, <laughs> and he did a great thing. We, we went down to the rehearsal place a couple of days later. And we had about eight or nine songs. We had this temporary bass player. So we'd run through the, the set, took about 45 minutes. And Peter was supposed to come at two o'clock. Two o'clock, no Peter. No cell phones in those days. So we had no way of knowing. Three right. still hasn't arrived. We run uh -huh. this again. 3.30, nah. Four o'clock, nah. Oh, shit. And then he suddenly walks in. We go, oh, Peter, thank you for coming. Not saying, what the fuck have you been? But never mind. <laughs> so he says, uh, I said, we said, well, sit down. You know, we like a cup of tea or something. And we'll, we'll run the set. He said, you don't have to run the set. And we thought, oh, God, maybe he's changed his mind. I don't know. He said, no, I've been, I've been sitting in the car listening to you through the windows. Because I knew that if I came and sat in this little hall, just me, you'd be nervous. Wow, what You're a right. smart man. So, I'll tell you what, what I've heard is incredible. Now, wow. me and Zeppelin, we, and we're going, wow, me and Zeppelin. We are launching, we're forming our own record label called Swan Song Records. And um, would you like to be on it? And we said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the start of a pretty amazing relationship i have to say uh but we didn't know really what we were getting into or what was in store for us there was a lot of fame a lot of fortune a lot of money but yeah the the, the clouds were starting to the cocaine uh era was starting for us and uh it all ended about 10 years later in the worst well, how did you how did you get Boz? How did that happen? Oh, great. So Boz, we we heard a lot about this legendary singer, uh, bass player, and he was playing with King Crimson. Oh, who, what a great band. Well, not my cup of tea. I was raised ah. by Al Green and Aretha and BB. That wasn't my thing. But I loved the name. What mm. a great name. <laughs> so 
But he'd just been given the the the, the elbow. He'd been sacked. So apparently he was, you know, looking for a gig. And we had this list of 16 bass players. Roger Hodgson, who went on to form Supertramp. And every time I see him, I said, aren't you glad you didn't join Bad Company? Um, <laughs> and various other people who didn't make the grade. And, and so Boz was the, the last guy. Wow. He's a great looking guy. He came into the rehearsal studio. He had his own, you know, bass, good looking guy, tall. And he, he we said, um, all right, Boz. And he said, well, look, before we start, um, can we go down in the pub, get to know each other? Oh, that's a nice <laughs> And there was a pub next door. We went down there, we had a couple of beers. And then we came back. We were a little, little buzzed, but we weren't terrible. But the guy was so friendly, easy to smile, easy, good, good guy. And we plugged, we plugged in. And we gave him a song to sing with the chord sheet. He said, I don't read chords. I can't, I'll just play along. And he did. And he played perfectly. And so we had a little break. We got in a huddle. And uh, I said, what do you think? And Paul said, I think he's great. All right. So we said, you're in. You're in. And uh, yeah, he, he was, I love Boz. He was a great guy. Great guy. And so it did not take long for you guys to just take off. No. Um, and so as as much popularity as you had as free, you couldn't even be you couldn't possibly anticipate what was going to happen with bad company. Well, the irony was, Vicky, that we were much more free in in playing what we want. Peter Grant never once told us what to play, what to wear. His, his creed was wear something bright and jump up and down a bit. <laughs> that was his stage direction. But when it came to the music, he let us have, you know, our own our free reign of what we did. But you've got to remember, we're coming from three um, very well-known bands in England. Right. We left our three bands rather in, in under dire circumstances, you know, Um so we wanted to prove to our previous bandmates that we had something good going. And I, I still believe to this day that Bad Company 74 to 79 was one of the greatest bands that ever played. I mean, we, I'll we say. do no wrong. It was a perfect storm. You had Led Zeppelin's management, Led Zeppelin's new label. The publicity was off the charts. And this band who come from three much loved English bands, all good looking guys. We could all play very well. Couldn't fail. And it did the greatest, probably <laughs> straight ahead rock and roll band that has ever been. I mean, just straight ahead rock and roll. Just wow. Um wow. So so and and you also all got along, right? It was a good very well. Yeah. We all got along very well. But then, you know, what happened was we had three straight platinum albums, multi-platinum. We were playing the Forum. We were playing, uh, you know, arenas. <clears throat> and it was everything we really wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, but the workload started to, you know, we did 100 straight days of shows on one tour. I mean, not 100 tours and 100 gigs in 100 days, but we were out on the road 
for 100 days. We did 10 shows in a row once. And it was it was too much. Even for us, it was too much. And so Paul, once again, Paul Rogers said, I need a break. I, you know, we've done three albums. They've all done really well. We, we've made a lot of money. We're, we're good. But I need to take a break. It's too much. And it was. Uh, and Peter Grant said, uh, sorry, guys, but you're contracted to Atlantic Records to do another album. Uh, when? Well, when you come off the next American tour. What? Yeah, we did. And uh, the result was an album called Burning Sky. And we went to um, uh, France to record Burning Sky. We really had no material. I think we had three and a half songs. So that's when it started to go, oh, this ain't good, guys. We're almost back in the free days where we're, we have to work because we're contracted to work. Mm -hmm. not to. And it was a real head scratcher. And um, the one good thing that came out of the France sessions, it was the Honky Chateau where Elton John and Bowie recorded. When we got there, Bowie was still there. And we got there on the appointed day and David came out and said, listen, guys, uh, we're running over a few days. Could, do you mind if we stay another couple of days? We said, no, you stay as long as you want. We hardly got any bloody songs anyway. So we ended up jamming and hanging out with Bowie and uh, it, that, that was great. But the writing was on the wall by 70, uh, 77 was... Um, Burning Sky got bad reviews. First album, Bad mm. Company, that got bad reviews for the most part. America loved it, and um, you know, off we went on another tour. That's when I started getting into blow, um, you know, to say, oh, to keep up with the workload. Bullshit. I was an addict. <laughs> um, so me and Paul, Paul Rogers gave up blow in '76. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, he he never he's clean and sober now a long, long time, but me, Mick, and Boz, we we still went at it, and that's when the division started. You know, most bands over a long time divide into camps. Zeppelin became uh, Bonzo and and Robert and and Jimmy and John Paul. Uh, the Stones were always Mick and Keith, Mick and then Keith and then you know, right? That's what happens over time. Uh, but this was exacerbated by the drug intake and Zeppelin were going through their own bad stages. They, they, uh, <clears throat> you know, they had the, the incident in Oakland where one of uh, Bill Graham's bodyguards was badly beaten. Everyone was doing it. And it was a, it was a mess. Mm -hmm. And Peter Grant, by his own admission, was, was well out of it. And uh, it just, by 79, um we were you know we just said that's it and we tried to carry on we did another another um album called uh rough diamonds and it really was rough we got into a fist fight it was just oh wow horrible. and then 1980 was when lennon was shot bonzo died and it was like the whole thing just collapsed and and bad company broke up well, 
Well, only temporarily. You have been with Bad Company for 50. You are the only member who has been in every incarnation, correct? Yeah, I am. And I mean, for better or for worse, I mean, we, Bad Company has been through several incarnations. Some the, the, the best one for me was the original. Mm -hmm. uh, then we had Brian Howe for about mm -hmm. seven years. And that, and here's the weird thing, Vicky. A lot of people um, who are slightly younger than me, they first became aware of Bad Company when Brian Howe joined the band. Right. When Brian died a couple of years ago, there were reams of tributes and RIPs to Brian and how people were kind of unaware. It's almost like Journey with Steve Perry. You know, the, the the relative youngsters who came on board weren't aware that, St the, that Steve Perry had even been in the band. So mm -hmm. had this weird metamorphosis where Bad Company became, for want of a better term, a hair band. You know, we mm -hmm. changed the groove. I, I started using um, processed drums. We started using big harmonies. And, you know, the, the whole direction of the band took a weird turn mm. we sold millions of albums so we must have been doing something right but it wasn't the same mm -hmm. i did miss i miss paul singing mm -hmm. and i miss, uh, mick was still in the band and bods was still in the band so i still had my mates but it was going down uh, a, a path that musically i i was not happy with and mm. then me and brian it was brian and the three of us, Boz left, me and Mick were like, you know, this is not working. And then Mick left, and there's left, that's me, just me. And we still managed to get through it, but uh, by 94, I went into rehab. I, I was a mess and I nearly died. Did, did you have a, um, did you have a bottom? Did something specific happen? Oh, yeah, I nearly died. I was on a tour bus. In Nashville, we pulled into Nashville, and I'd been partying. Uh, I hate that euphemism, partying. So I'd do been... I. When the kids say we're part, yeah, I don't like it either. <laughs> so I decided to take some Ativan with Jack Daniels. That was very clever. And my girlfriend at the time, they put me into the bunk, you know, in the tour bus, and she was with me, and they couldn't wake me up. And the other guys, was it, it, it had been a long trip. They just said, fuck it. We're going to our beds. They went to the hotel. And she was left with me. She dragged me out of the bunk and started slapping me around and walking me around because I was nearly going under. And I don't remember a thing, Vicky. I remember waking up in the bedroom with her and she's looking at me like, you nearly died. You nearly died. Were you a blackout drunk historically through your... Uh Every now and again, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, yes, I mean, I did have blackouts when I drove. Scary. Oh. Scary. Um, so that's when I realized you got to stop. This has got to stop, man, because you're going to die. And I was 20, no, wishful thinking. I was 45, 45. That's when I stopped. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I went into rehab. Mm -hmm. And I was good. I mean, I'd been into rehab before in uh, 1980 and I got clean. I stopped drinking for a couple of years, but then it crept, crept up on me. But this was a real shock. And I blamed it on the blow because the blow made me take all sorts of stuff, 
just to to get a yawn, just to try and <laughs> to get a yawn. <laughs> keep praying for a yawn. Um, so I stopped doing. I did stop doing blow, and that really everything decreased in proportion to that. I stopped uh, drinking so much and stopped taking Valium and anything to go to get to sleep. And I've been off blow ever since. I don't miss it. I, you know, you could hold a gun to my head and I'd never do another line. But I still drank, you know, and that came back on me. So Bad Company went through, we got another singer, Robert Hart, who was a great singer, very much like Paul, mm -hmm. and joined the band again because he didn't get on with Brian, Brian Howe. And off we went on, on Bad Company Mark Three, And <laughs> um, we... We we made a pretty good album, and um, but then you know it started to started to happen again, and I think by '97, Mick had a bad problem. My drinking was starting up again. <clears throat> Excuse me, <clears throat> and so we we kind of we just ground to a halt, and that's when Paul in 1999. It was 25 years after Bad Company's first album. They wanted the record company wanted to release a compendium of all our album, best of mm -hmm. triple CD. And they wanted us to get back together to promote it. And they offered us a lot of money. And Paul came back and it was wonderful to isn't that when you were doing Ringo? Didn't you do Ringo right around oh, the same oh, time? Yeah, yeah. Ringo. Oh yeah. 96. I got a call from <laughs> From Ringo, uh, we were, we had this big hiatus at about two years off. And Ringo, he called me and said, hey, this is Ringo. I said, yeah, right. <laughs> said, no, no, it's Ringo. He said, I hear you just got out of rehab. I said, yeah, I, I did. He said, well, do you want to join the band? I said, do you mean the all-star band? He said, yeah, the all-star band. He said, I'd, I'd love to. He said, well, do you think you can do it sober? Wow. I wow. Said, I will give it a shot, sir. I called him, sir. He said, call me Ringo. <laughs> so I did. And it was one of the greatest. I did four tours with him. Okay, now wait, did you, uh, I'm not sure, but did you do it with Peter Frampton? Yeah. And, and you did Frampton, it with Jack Bruce? Jack Bruce, Mark Rivera, and Gary Brooker. It was a wonderful band. Okay, now your was your experience. I'm very curious about this because when I interviewed John Waite, he had done it a little after you, and when he did it, he said everybody was just waiting for their turn, and it was just people that had hits and they weren't a band. But I recently interviewed Lukather, and he's been with Ringo a long time, and they have a very different. They have a band, like they love playing with Ringo when they're a band. Now your experience was it. A band? Oh, not. I mean, from the get-go, no. I mean, that's a very good uh, comment that John made. That yeah, we come from five disparate bands: Pokal Harm, Cream, uh, Peter Frampton, and uh, Gary from. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, four bands. So when we we all knew each other through our histories, but we never. Right. And Jack. I was, you know, I, Jack was a tough guy. He was, he was a tough little Scotsman. And I was like, oh. So when we all got together, we actually had Dave Mason in the lineup. Wow. This, this is a great story. So in the very first rehearsal, we're doing we're doing our little party pieces and whatever. And it's, and, but it's 
For me, it's too many guitars. It's one guitar too many because Peter <laughs> is such an amazing guitarist. And Dave was, you know, I didn't really know and I didn't take to him straight away. So at the end of the first rehearsal, these two, you know the girls that carry signs around boxing rings in the middle of a, you know, to, to denote the different, um, hang on, what's going on? I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know why that's happening. Why is that happening? That's so, all right. I don't know how to stop that. I don't know why that's okay. happening. Okay, that was very weird. Oh, these two beautiful, for want of a better word, girls, for want of a better word, <laughs> they walk into the rehearsal and they say, is Dave here? And Ringo looks at me and I look at Ringo. I said, what the fuck? I said, yeah, well, we're just breaking up. He's gone to the restaurant. Oh, we're here to take him home. Okay. And these are like, you know, we're talking buxom girls who carry cards around the ring in a boxing match. And they're scantily dressed. And, and the guys in the band are like, what the hell? So Dave comes out. He's washing his hands. And, like, and he says, um, I, 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 won't, I won't be here tomorrow, Ringo. And Ringo goes, uh, why? What? He said, I've got a gig in Philadelphia. And Ringo says, wait a minute, we're in LA. I said, yeah, these girls are taking me to the airport. I've got a gig tomorrow night. And he says, you mean you won't be here for the rehearsal tomorrow? No, I've got a gig tomorrow. He said, did you understand that when you signed this contract, it would include all rehearsals and all shows? Yeah, sorry about that. And Ringo says, okay, keep walking. Wow. Oh, wow. So he leaves with his tail between his legs. Wow. The, the arms of these two <laughs> playboy boys. And that's the last we see of him. And in a way, it was a blessing in disguise. Because mm. up, number one, it got rid of this awful vibe that just descended on the, the rehearsal room. Um, and R Richie was like, well, I guess that's three less numbers that we have to learn. <laughs> and, it, and it became this one of the best bands uh, according to rolling stone how yeah. fabulous great time i loved it yeah how fabulous i i i, I promised you an hour and i don't want to i yeah. i want to be good to that but i just i know that you played with um with chuck berry also and i i just wanted to ask you about that because we've talked about steve conti briefly and he also played with Chuck Berry and he had the experience where Chuck would come in and there's no rehearsal and like, it's like just crazy. And Chuck like tunes differently. And he like, oh, yes, I, I got a great. Okay. Some so what was your experience with Chuck? I was in, believe it or not, I was in Gestad when I used to ski and we, I was there for about a week and I got to know the aristocracy there. It's a long story, but. I knew aristocracy in London and they knew each other and whatever. So I'm in my hotel room and I got a call and it's this guy, this rather, uh, he's like a count, uh, like a Swiss count. It's a silent, I'm so glad I tracked you down. We have a show tomorrow with Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry. The drummer is sick. He's got the flu. Would you, would you please? I said, who? He said, Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, it's a private party. I said, I would love to. Are you kidding? He said, good, because Chuck is arriving in Geneva Airport in about two hours. Would you like to come and meet him? I said, fuck it, I'd love to. 
So this is a great story. I hope you got time. So we go down to the the um, Geneva airport, and we're in the uh, arrivals hall. You know where all the bags come off. Mm-hmm. There's a little party with signs, "Welcome, Chuck Berry." La la. Sure enough, he walks. You know the the doors go switch. He walks through with his little entourage, <laughs> and the the promoter says, "Welcome, Mr. Berry. We are so happy to have you here." La. And and Chuck goes, "We have a, a limousine for you to go." And he looks, uh, it's a Cadillac. Now, to get a Cadillac in Switzerland is, I don't know how he did it, but <laughs> we're going, wow. How the hell? <laughs> Chuck looks at the promoter and he goes, Chuck doesn't want no fucking caddy. He wants a Mercedes. And we're looking, why did he just say Chuck when he is Chuck? Is he an impersonator? Is the <laughs> Chuck about to walk through the doors? So we're looking around. I said, Mr. Berry, you know, we went through a lot of trouble to get this for you. He said, I don't want no damn Cadillac. I want a Mercedes. And I want to drive it. Now, he's come from St. Louis via JFK to Geneva. He's jet lagged. He's a little drunk. So with frantically, they go to Hertz. They get the biggest Mercedes they can. He pulls up. Chuck says, I'm driving. Mr. Berry, it is up the mountain. You cannot. No, I'm driving. That's it. So we all follow this this uh, Mercedes, which is sort of zigzagging. Oh, my God. This is my first introduction to Chuck Berry. Anyway, we get to the hotel. We go to start rehearsing. He wants to rehearse straight away. And it's Johnny Johnson on, on piano. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Nathan East. Um, oh. Great bass. Wonderful bass player. And Chuck. So we're playing along, and it's pretty good, but his, his guitar is so out of tune. <laughs> This is what I've heard. <laughs> well, I, he must be having a, having a joke. When he's doing the bottom strings, they're okay. When he starts playing lead on the top three string, it's a nightmare. So he goes to the restroom and I say to Nathan, Nathan, is it me? He says, his guitar is so flat. What are we going to do? The G string was maybe three frets flat. It was horrible. So I said, listen, I think I'll think of something. Got it. Okay. Chuck comes back, tells me, you know, sits down. He said, we're going to, I said, uh, Chuck, there's a phone call for you in the lobby from America. He said, oh, oh motherfucker. Grumpy. So he gets, puts his guitar down in the case and goes off. I said, quick, Nathan, get the door. So Nathan's standing in the door. My God. And sure enough, the G and B strings are so flat. Tune it, takes all of 10 seconds. Boom. Quick, he's coming, quick. Put it back in the case. <laughs> Hello, Chuck. All right. He says, there was no phone call for me. Someone's playing a bunch of tricks on me. Anyway, so he picks up the guitar, and I think, oh, God, he's going to sort, he's going to find out that it's been tuned. Off we go. Wonderful. No problem. We did the rehearsal. And then we did the gig, and it it was great. Man. He he was a hard a hard guy to work for. I got to tell you. Please That's check. what I hear. That's all right. So before I let you go, I have to ask: Have you had COVID? I have twice. It's Not right. so bad. Yeah, my voice dropped about four octaves. Um, I you know, but it, it was no worse than the. It was not as bad as the flu I had several years ago, which is awful. Um, I think having the vaccine 
maybe um, uh, made the symptoms a little less. I don't know, but I, I still got it. But um, no, I just got my ass kicked for like a month, the whole month of January. I'd never had it before. And oh, man, it just and I've had all the vaccines and boosters and everything. But boy, I was I mean, I'm not like I just was. Yeah. Down for the count for like a month. It was a drag. So wow. and and has your life changed as a result of the pandemic, do you think? Not really. You know, I still don't know what a weekend is. I haven't known <laughs> what a weekend is for 50 years. You know, it could be Monday, it could be Friday, it could be Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of, I think bad company is done, unfortunately, much to my sorrow. I saw something online about a, a tour in Germany in two, 2024, no? Oh, Paul came out uh, a few months ago. He did a 60 Minutes ABC, <clears throat> 60 Minutes show where he was promoting his new solo album. And I'd known for the last few years that he had strokes and heart attacks. Mm. He came out and he said, I had two major strokes and I, I've had heart trouble. And I probably will not be touring again. Mm. But I don't think he's averse to maybe doing a residency somewhere. Mm. His, his ability to sing to belt, uh, like he, we all know and love him for, mm -hmm. I think that's diminished quite a lot. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, we're 74 and I'll be 75 in uh, July. And I don't really think that um, there's much, much of a future left for the band. I'm sorry to say, because I miss it terribly. I miss touring. I don't miss touring, but I miss playing. Um, I do occasional solo shows. I I have stories that are amazing stories. And I play guitar and piano and I'll play drums with uh, musicians in the area but bad company i think is pretty much done well all because of you i was telling you before we went on the air that this is intended as the greatest compliment but you sound so much like roger daltrey um it's a fabulous song i'm um kind of obsessed with it right now um well, well, sounds my wife my new i've been married now for seven years but i met maria 10 years ago how did you meet well, I met in a club. It's another story. Uh, she was w working as a greeter in a club called the Cutting Room. Of course. Great club. Oh, Chris Noth's club. Yeah, yeah. And I was asked by Ronnie Wood if I'd play drums on this tribute to Jimmy Reed, this great blues player. Oh, and yeah. Ronnie was coming over from London, and because I lived in New York, it would save him, you know, airfares and so on, and he asked me how I like to play. I said, I'd love to. Um, so I walked into the club and it was about 6.30 just for the sound check for the eight o'clock show. And Maria was on the door, you know, and she was writing something in, in a ledger. And I was absolutely gobsmacked. And she was so beautiful. And I, I, I sort of walked down the stairs thinking I've got to meet this girl. You know, I was in the tail end of a very bad marriage exacerbated by my addiction and hmm. the whole thing I mean, sure I've been, I've been with Lorraine for 30 years and they were not good years the last hmm. 10 or 12 years so I don't want to knock her she was she was going through a lot herself and we had three beautiful daughters together but it was the end of the marriage so I um Maria came into the office where we it was our little temporary band room 
and she she said she felt drawn to come down to the office. She she, she didn't know why, and she walked in, and we were sat around the table going over the set list. And I just looked at her and said, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> my first words to my future wife. And uh, she, I grinned at her and she just was, oh, hello. <laughs> and turned on her heel and ran or exited rather quickly, shall we say. And um, she said that she felt a connection there mm -hmm. and then. And they began a, a courtship that lasted about four years before we we, we got married. Yeah. How lovely! And so, okay, so no bad finger, uh, no bad finger, no bad company. But what? And you have your solo work. I know that there's something else on your plate that you're looking to do. What? 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 You've done a few films. You've done a few films. Oh, yes, I have. I've done a couple of. I've always been interested in. Uh, movie scoring and whenever i see a movie i go, oh, wow that's good music i know a couple of good guys i mean carter burwell has become a friend he's done all the Cohen brothers um movies i know jo joe delila who's done all the abel ferrera movies and they help me with tips and so on and so forth but i actually want to get into movie and tv scoring and this is where our dear friend snuffy comes in because I'd heard through the grapevine that Snuffy was like the capo di tutti capi of <laughs> TV scoring. So I called him up, I emailed him, and he's been so helpful over the past 12 months. And uh, I really want to connect with him when I come over there. Um, Absolutely. Have you um have you watched Fargo, the TV series? No. Oh, um, no, I haven't. Okay, I'm going to suggest from a scoring perspective, we just finished it. It is oh. the most interesting score. It's the same guy. I don't know his name, which is terrible. <clears throat> it is the most interesting score I have ever heard all five seasons. It's fascinating. I mean, it's a great show also. It's the Coen brothers. Yeah. And oh. and the score, you, Simon, you have to, I'm telling you, it's fascinating. It's like nothing else. Did it have, I believe I saw the first season, did it have Jamie Foxx in it? The first season. No, the the fourth season has Chris Rock in it, but the last season has uh, the first season had Billy Bob Thornton, and the last season has um, uh, <laughs> John Hamm in it. But oh. it's um, it's very dark. It's very it's got humor, but it's dark. But oh. the score, as as a composer, I'm telling you, it's so original. It's oh. so unusual. Check it out. No. Yeah, I think you would really appreciate it because it's just out there. Yeah. Very well, unusual. There's that, and I'll, I really want to get into that. The other thing is I'm writing with two other people, a rock opera about addiction called, wow. uh, called Rock Bottom. And it's... How um, fantastic. Yeah, it's we, We've written, well, I've written primarily 15 songs uh, with uh, one of the guys... I've written a couple myself. We've got about 15 and 16 really good songs. We're homing or honing the script as we speak. We've we've done a couple of drafts. We're having a table read soon and we're looking for investors. I mean, I think how fantastic. Really take off. So how fantastic. Also, um uh you're a part of Road Recovery. What is that, Simon? Road Recovery is a little organization 
in uh, Manhattan that helps uh, youngsters deal with um, substance abuse, uh, sexual abuse, uh, you know, just growing up being a teenager in New York. And we use music to bring them together. And um, it's been, it's celebrating 25 years now. We've had right. thousands of kids come through our doors and um, it's, it's we fund it with charitable do donations. If you go to roadrecovery.org, you know, there's hundreds and thousands of parents out there who worry on a nightly basis about their kids. And uh, we've had some great su success stories. We've had some tragic stories because, as you know, not everyone gets it two, three, four times around the uh, the roundabout. You know, it takes a, a long time. So that's road recovery. And then I'm on the board of another uh, rehab slash recovery center called Right Turn, which is in Arlington, Massachusetts. And the, the CEO of that uh, right Turn is Woody Geisman, who's helping me write this uh, rock opera, Rock Bottom. So, you know, I'm a busy guy. But, You're uh, a busy guy, but it's really, it's, it, it's very powerful to me to hear you giving back like this and making recovery and helping others. Because as you know, as they tell us in the rooms, we can't keep it if we don't give it away. And it's wonderful that you're using this reach that you have to do that. Thank you. I, I look forward to the Pond Streets meeting link. If you can send that. I'm going to send it to you and I'm going to invite you to speak at another meeting. And I yeah. look forward to so much more, Simon. Thank you so much for doing this, Thank Simon. Thank you. Tell Snuffy I'll get in touch with him soon. I've got to I go absolutely, dinner. I absolutely will. My stomach is rumbling. <laughs> Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.